0: Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 26. So on the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Governor Festus, Paul was brought in. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations against me. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am except for these chains the word of the Lord
1: as we look at Acts 26 today there's two questions that I want to guide our time the two questions are these why is the gospel such a threat and secondly how does the gospel transform us why is the gospel such a threat and how does the gospel transform us So we've been in the book of Acts uh, since Easter, actually. Since the week after Easter, we've been in Acts. And if you trace the book of Acts, the book of Acts could be described as the birth of the Christian church. It's the first decades or so after Jesus. But it could also be called the journey of the gospel to the ends of the earth. As Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you watch and hear the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. But one other way that you could actually describe the whole book of Acts is as the story of Paul. He is the primary protagonist in the story, and it's the story of Paul who was the prosecutor, persecutor of Christians who becomes the preacher of Christ, the most influential man in the history of Christianity spreading. Now what's interesting is everywhere Paul goes, as he goes throughout the Mediterranean basin, and you could see this if you read Acts 9 and 10 and all the way through to where we are today, everywhere he goes he is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And everywhere he goes trouble follows him. He goes to the city of Damascus shortly after his conversion and the people there want to kill him. The Christians lower him at night in a basket out a window and he escapes. He goes to Philippi and there incites a riot where people beat him with rods, functionally baseball bats. He's jailed at night, body bruised and broken, singing hymns and converts the jailer. In Corinth, he is arrested. In Ephesus, he incites a riot. Everywhere Paul went, he did two things. He preached the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, And everywhere he went, people listened to him and then tried to murder him. One of the last places Paul was determined to go was back to Jerusalem. He had been away for probably years and years. And he wanted to go back to the place where he had grown up learning the faith, studying under the rabbis. And he wanted to share the good news of Jesus there and also encourage the church. But as he was returning on his way, the church said to him, Do not go to Jerusalem. People spoke prophetic words saying, when you go back, you will be arrested. You will probably die. But Paul feels called by God back to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the Christians there say, okay, Paul, let's try and keep you from getting killed on day one. I know what you should do. You should follow all the Jewish rituals when you come back go through ceremonial cleansing, present yourself at the temple. So he does this whole process that was supposed to happen if you were a faithful Jew, because he was a faithful Christian and a faithful Jew. He returns to the temple and instantly people recognize him. They incite a mob and they are literally ready to tear him to pieces. A Roman soldier going by, one of the tribunals, as they say, he was an officer, seize the riot and they stop it all and arrest Paul and drag him off to the prison. And they decide to examine him by flogging, which was basically you were going to rip a guy's body apart and say, why were people trying to kill you? But Paul stops them and says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me without without proper, just accusations. So the Roman tribunal says, okay, let's call together all the Jewish leaders and figure out what's wrong. A trial occurs and there's no real evidence against Paul. So what the guy decides to do, the Roman guy, he's like, I'm going to send Paul out of Jerusalem immediately because he heard that there was a plot to kill Paul. So he sends him by night with hundreds of Roman soldiers to Caesarea, which was the county seat, if you would. Multiple miles away, they had to get all the way to the city of Caesarea, which was up in Lebanon. And there was a governor named Felix. And Felix holds a Roman trial for Paul. He brings the, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. They come and bring accusations against Paul. There's no real accusations But Felix decides to to appease them by keeping Paul in jail for two years with no accusations, no actual legal trial against him. He's in prison for two years, no way forward, stuck. Now we walk through these things as if they're normal, okay? He is beaten nearly to death. He's arrested and in a place where he has no rule of law, no justice to defend him. He's stuck in prison for years. I mean, this is the worst of being in a a world without rule of law. After two years, a new governor comes in. His name is Festus. Festus takes over and says, what's this Paul guy doing in here? He brings Paul before him, and Paul says, I'm just going to send you back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, at which point Festus decides, well, I've got to send him to Caesar now. Roman citizen who appeals to Caesar, you've got to send him all the way to Rome or else it's an affront to Caesar. But he's not really sure what he's going to send as a letter on with him. So the next couple of days, a guy named King Agrippa, who was the great grandson of King Herod, arrives to greet greet this new governor, Festus, and and there's a big to-do about it. And Festus says, hey, King Agrippa, I've got this guy Paul. I want you to hear from him. He wants to go to Caesar and I don't really know what to do with him. So they gather a huge party. Festus is there. King Agrippa and his sister come in in all the pomp and circumstance. In the great hall, there's this big banquet with everyone in the city of Caesarea who is powerful. The military leaders, the the, the men of the city, they're all there and then in gets brought in, in chains, Paul. The peasant Paul. Beaten and broken Paul. And they don't know what to do with him. All of them see this Paul. Standing there in chains is actually a greater threat than they could imagine. Why was the gospel such a threat to the Jewish leadership, to the Roman leadership, to every city that Paul goes? Why is the gospel such a threat? The gospel is such a threat because Jesus is not just another religious path. Governor Festus says to King Agrippa, he gets to the heart of the issue in Acts 25, 19. He says, okay, here's the deal. Paul is under arrest because of a dispute about a guy named Jesus who was dead, but Paul thinks is alive. Now, Festus, the governor, doesn't realize that he's hitting on the crux of the issue. The reason why the Jewish leadership wants him dead is because Jesus is alive, Paul claims. Now, Religious disputes are not uncommon, right? They happen today, they've happened for hundreds of years. You can go to the region of Kashmir, the the disputed region between Pakistan and India, and there's battles between Muslims and Hindus about whose land it belongs to. Go back 20, 25 years, 30 years to the former Yugoslavia, and there was a battle between Catholic Croats and Serbian Orthodox and Bosnian Muslims over land and territory. But what you find as you go through any of these religious disputes, especially that turn into war, is that it's very rarely about the religious disputes. It's very much more often about ethnicity and clan and about territory and who's in power. And seldom do these battles have the people there representing their religion faithfully. So we know about religious disputes on that big level. We also know about inter religious disputes, right? Christianity is filled with a bunch of denominations because of inter-religious disputes. It's the difference between covenantal theology and dispensational theology, right? You guys get excited about that? If you do, I'll point you to people to read. If you don't, ignore it. But there are disputes that are actual differences about how you approach reading the Bible. And those things are important Judaism was filled with that sort of thing. Second Temple Judaism, the couple hundred years before Jesus and the hundred years after him, Second Temple Judaism was filled with these disputes that were based around the Pharisees, the rabbis, that Jesus talks to a lot, the Sadducees, the priests in the temple, guys called the Essenes who hid in caves waiting for the destruction of the world, and Zealots who wanted to fight everyone. So you had these four major branches of Judaism in the first century. One of the most famous was two rabbinic schools the, the school of, of Hillel and the school of Shammai it was like being from Harvard or Yale or that sort of thing, right? And different people followed Hillel or Shammai, and they had disputes like this. If the question was whether one should tell an ugly bride that she's beautiful, Shammai, who was the more traditional conservative, said, it was wrong to lie. Don't tell her anything. Hillel, who was the more generous, said, all brides are beautiful on their wedding day. There's a whole series of statements by Hillel and Shammai about interpreting the law, what you can and can't do, disputes that involved arguments. So why wasn't Christianity just another acceptable branch of Judaism? Why are the religious authorities so determined to kill Paul? Here's why because Christianity is not just another religious interpretation or another moral path. It's a claim about Jesus as the risen Messiah, that he is the Savior and the Lord. And the problem is that word Lord. Lord is the same as sovereign. And a sovereign is this, a sovereign is one who has ultimate and total power absolute, unlimited freedom. And at our root, every one of us claims to be the sovereign of our life. You know, Paul's previous view of Christianity before he met the risen Jesus was, we have it in verse 11, he was in raging fury against the Christians. This is overabundant, overflowing rage Rage that cannot be contained. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. He was very learned. He understood all the rabbinic traditions. It doesn't say that he was in raging fury against the Sadducees or the Essenes. He was, however, in raging fury against Christianity. Why? Because Christianity was not an alternative to what he was already doing. Within the school of, schools of Judaism, the different rabbis, the different ways of approaching things, the Essenes, the, the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these were opposing alternative approaches to what Paul was already doing. They were another path, but he'd chosen a path, and he was on it, and he was doing quite well. So why should he choose their road? He was getting to where he wanted to go quite well. The reason why he was in raging fury, and actually, the, if, the reason why you get to raging fury at something is when the very core and center of you is being challenged. The gospel was a threat to Paul's core in a way that no religion, no philosophy, no worldview could be. You will be most vicious when what is most important to you is threatened. You will be most vicious when what is most important to you is threatened, or at least you perceive it to be threatened. It's the mother bear thing, right? Don't get between a mother bear and her cubs. Take two students who are both straight A students. Both straight A students who get a B on a pretty major test. Now both students being straight A students will probably go and talk to the teacher because they know how to advocate for themselves and they do care about their grades. One student might be annoying to the teacher. If you're a teacher, you know what this is like. But they're the kid who actually wants to know why did I get a B, I thought I answered these things right, I thought my, my essays were good, helped me to understand. The other kid loses it, becomes inconsolable, is enraged, is hateful towards the teacher because to him, the grade is what matters. His identity is in the grade. Without the grade, he is nothing. It's not just he likes to learn and he wants to know why he got a B, not an A. That viciousness comes out when what is most important to us is being threatened. And it doesn't matter what's most important, your grades, how people perceive your intelligence, your kids and their happiness and success. If it feels like it's being threatened, you will become vicious if it is most important to you. And believe me, you can see this on any little league field or in any neighborhood, moms and dads who put their whole life in their kids' happiness and success. If he's not starting, if you're trying to correct my child, I would rather get in a fight with a mother bear than many people in this community. And I'm not saying here, obviously not here. I mean like there. We all have functional saviors. Here's what it is. We all want to measure up, okay? We want to be okay with ourselves, to be happy. And so we create a definition of what is salvation for us. We choose some path to get what we want most in life, to get to our salvation, to reach our heaven, however we define it. Your path could be moral goodness. Moral goodness will get you to some sort of spiritual heaven. Or it could be being accepted by people, being approved and loved by people. That's what will make you happy. It could be financial independence or career success. Or just having a happy marriage and a happy home. It's the idea, if I have that, if I just get there in my life, Then I've made it, then I'll be happy, then I'll be okay. And of course, if I can't get that, then what do I have to live for? Whatever that is, is our functional savior. Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, your true God is whatever you're truly trusting in. It's whatever is most important to you, your source of identity, where you place all your hopes, and it's the center of your greatest fears. Paul had found that in his knowledge of the Jewish law, in his religious obedience, in his moral goodness, and in the status and acclaim that gave him in the rabbinic circles in Judaism. The gospel was a threat to Paul's identity and direction because it said he could not be sovereign over his life. There was another who was. And at its root, the gospel is a threat to all of us because it means we must lose control. At the basis of the gospel is that you cannot be good enough and you cannot save yourself. You and everyone else in this world needs Jesus. Now that sounds simple. You're not good enough. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus. It sounds simple, but it's incredibly threatening. This is why Jesus and Christianity is so threatening to the most accomplished and brilliant in our culture. Anyone who's incredibly successful, has multiple degrees, has lots of acclaim, has established themselves, Jesus is an absolute threat because here's here's the basis of the American dream. You have gotten there. You have worked hard. It's because you're smart enough. It's because you're good enough. It's because you've managed your money. It's because you don't ruin your marriage. It's because you've got it all under control. You are saving yourself, and you're good at it. The idea that you are on par with the worst of the addicts, of the broken, of the people whose lives aren't together, is just anathema. At its root, the average American is seeking to be his or her own savior, achieving their dreams on their own. The gospel challenges my autonomy and sovereignty. It challenges my freedom to do what I want. And the reason why the gospel challenges my autonomy and my freedom is not because it says you must live this way and not that way, that's religion. No, the gospel says it's not your life to live. It's now Jesus' life. In other words, Christianity is not just about which road you're on driving to that destination. Oh, so I was on this road, now I've got to be a Christian, I'll drive on this road. Christianity is not about which road to choose. Christianity is about handing over the keys and recognizing the car belongs to Jesus. It's not your car to drive. Christianity is a challenge to our autonomy and sovereignty at every level. Because the claim that Paul makes, that the gospel makes, is Jesus alone is the Messiah. He and he alone is Savior and Lord, the only way to God. The reason why other religions and worldviews and philosophies aren't as threatening is because they're just another path to moral betterment. And as we know, with diets and exercise, you can pick and choose what you want. Like if you don't like hot yoga, just do like 98 degree yoga. You know, the, the best parts of the paleo diet, along with ice cream. With religion, we do the same thing. I kind of like a a Buddhist uh, Jewish uh, Jesus approach. The gospel demands that we drop all other claims and take all of Him. The end. That's why the gospel is such a threat, because Jesus is Lord. How does the gospel transform us? Well, We see it starting with Paul. Paul's on the road to Damascus, and the story goes that he's confronted with the risen Jesus, and Paul finally gives himself over to God's plans and God's good, not his own course. So, Paul recounts his life in this testimony that he gives before this grand tribunal in the governor's hall. He talks about his early life, how he was progressing in Judaism, how he had reached the the high point of his career. As a young man, he had already reached that status and acclaim in Judaism. He was also zealous for his faith. He was recognized as somebody who was passionate in a culture that valued religious passion. But on the road to Damascus, in order to eliminate this heresy called Christianity, he's confronted by the risen Jesus, and Jesus says to him in verse 14, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, we talked about it a few uh, weeks back, but it's basically a sharp stick to drive the sheep or the cattle in the right direction. It was a Greco-Roman proverb, and the way that it's being used by Jesus here is that Paul was fighting the irresistible purposes of God for his life. For some time, Paul had been pushing against this Jesus that he had heard about, this Christianity, this gospel. And at each point, he was being prodded. Why are you fighting against God's purposes for you? (laughs) We could probably ask the question ourselves, right? Why are you fighting against God's purposes for you? God's purposes for Paul are to know Jesus as his Messiah, his Savior and Lord, not to trust his own law obedience, and to become a witness of the gospel to the Gentiles. We read this in verse 16 to 18, how the gospel transforms Paul. Jesus says, rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you in order to open their eyes, the Gentiles' eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In that verse 18, in that verse 18 we get the summary of the gospel of transformation. It's how you come to faith in Christ. It's how conversion happens, if you would. And it's actually also how you grow in your faith in Christ. It's how the gospel continues to transform you. It's the opening of your eyes, the turning to God and receiving all that God would give you. If you want more of what God has to offer or if you want to know God in the first place, your eyes, that means your very heart needs to be opened, that you are spiritually blind and helpless on your own. Even if you're a good person, your finances are in order. Your kids don't hate you yet. You need a savior. Open your eyes and turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. You know what's interesting about that phrasing is that Paul preached to all sorts of people. He preached to the philosophers in Athens. He he preached to pagan idolaters in Ephesus and he preached to the most holy and faithful rabbis and priests in synagogues and in Jerusalem. And the message was that all of them are in darkness. All of them are under the power of Satan. Not just the pagan and immoral, but also the brilliant and accomplished, and even the religious and morally good are in darkness. That's because sin, as it's being defined here, is not just doing bad things. It's living as Lord of your own life. It's being your own savior. You can try and find salvation through immorality and enjoying life or through avoiding immorality and being good enough to get somewhere. Paul is called to tell all people the gospel truth that everyone needs to turn from your functional saviors to Jesus as your center and ultimately to receive, to receive the forgiveness of sins, a place among God's people. And the good news of the gospel is that any can have the gift of salvation. Anyone can have forgiveness and a place at God's table, Jew or Gentile, Kings, prisoners, lifelong churchgoers, lifelong addicts. But all must come through Jesus. The gospel transforms Paul from saving himself to trusting in the one Savior. And that gospel also changes Paul's desires for God's purposes in his life and God's purposes for all people. In verse 28 and 29, King Agrippa says to Paul, so Paul, in such a short time, this one little speech, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, in short time or long, not only you, but all who hear me this day, I desire that everyone might become as I am except for these chains. The gospel radically upended Paul's priorities and challenged cultural values that he held and everyone in his audience held that day. In Acts 25 and uh, verse 23, which was the very first verse that we read, the description is King Agrippa and his sister Bernice enter this big hall in Caesarea in great pomp and circumstance, and there are tons of guests gathered for a great banquet feast. It's the Roman centurions, all the officers of the military, the leading men of the city, governor himself, and the king of the region. They're all gathered there in all of their great pomp and circumstance. And then Paul is brought in, a peasant in peasant's clothing, bound by chains. Have you ever walked in a room and felt like you were underdressed? Paul was the most out-of-place person in the room. Now today, we don't value social status as much as they did back then. It's not as important. And on top of that, look, anyone can put on a suit, right? Any guy can put on a suit, and it doesn't matter whether you're here or here, you kind of look the same when you enter the party. But in that culture, your robes signified your social status. And banquets like the one that Paul was in solidified positions of social hierarchy in a very public manner. Paul's entrance in chains would have been, or at least should have been, horribly shameful and embarrassing to him. Absolutely demeaning. And it would have been to the previous Paul, but not to the gospel transformed Paul. Because Paul's confidence is no longer based on the culture's metrics nor even on his own made-up metrics of status and value and importance and what makes you worthwhile in your culture. His confidence was based in Christ. In other words, at this point, as Paul's standing there in chains, he could have straight A's and all the money in the world and the approval of all the people or not. It didn't matter to him. He had all he needed because he had Christ. And then Paul gives a testimony. Now what's interesting is if you read through Acts 26, Paul does not give a defense. He is essentially on trial between, before the two most powerful people in the region, the Roman governor and the Jewish king. And he doesn't give a testimony asking to be set free, although he could have been set free. He doesn't even demand justice the way that we want our rights, our fair share, We want, you know, everything to work out for us in the way that we feel like it should, what we deserve. He's not concerned about what he deserves. In fact, he's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about them. Paul is there on trial, and he's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about them. Because his heart has been changed so that he no longer desires his own purposes for his life, he desires God's. And that includes God's desire for all people, that all would come to a saving knowledge of him in Jesus Christ. God's desire for all people is that everyone, whether in short time or long, would come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Is that your desire for all other people? Is that even your own desire for your kids? Your primary desire for them is that they know Jesus. Is that your primary desire for your own life? Yes, I want to get here. I want to accomplish this. I want to do these things. But if I can't and I have Jesus, I have enough. Have you experienced the transforming power of the gospel so that your identity and your confidence and your hope are in Christ? And your main desire in life is for the whole world to experience that too. Let's pray.